1: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And this week, The Economist asks, should we be turning our understanding of the Middle East upside down? Peter Frankopan is senior research fellow at Worcester College, Oxford, and director of the Oxford Centre for Byzantine Research. In a best-selling book, The Silk Roads, he argues that the Western world takes an overly Western-centred view of its own history, focusing on heritage in Rome and Greece, rather than the importance of cultures and ideas that were developed east of Byzantium in Persia. But what does this approach tell us about the relationship between East and West today? And how might an altered vision of our history influence the actions taken by Western countries in conflicts and interventions? Peter is with me in the studio. Hello. Hello. Now, first of all, what do you think would be the biggest difference in today's broader decision-making if we had a less Western-centred view of our history?
0: Well, I suppose we could start by trying to understand those countries in the world that offer both some opportunities but also great challenges today. I'd have thought if you take a broad view on what's happening in the 21st century and in 2016, uh, although we might think that the American election or Brexit are the biggest things going on, it would seem to me that uh, the future direction of China, what's happening in Russia, countries like Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan and India are the place where things are really happening and where things go both right or possibly wrong will have major global significance. But the problem, I think, is that we live in a goldfish bowl where we only look around so far as we're told to by our school curriculums, by what other people say, and our disengagement from a part of the world where 70% of the population live, from the Pacific coast to China through to the eastern Mediterranean, tells me that the way we look at the world around us is either distorted but probably
1: flawed. Well, let's come back to how directly responsible that is for policy choices and and views now. But just to unpack your book a little, as far as I understand it, you see the Mediterranean not in the way that a lot of Western historians have written about it as a kind of centre of the world from which much flows, whether it's trade, culture, economic ties, seeing as we're also talking about today's Europe and Brexit. But you see it at the end of a trade route with a very different centre of gravity. So where does that lie and how did you decide that?
0: Well, I suppose you start from the beginning. Mediterranean, the word means center of the earth. And uh, I can show you whatever map you like, and there's no way you can put the Mediterranean anywhere near the center of the earth. In fact, when we talk about Mediterranean civilization, or even anecdotally going on holiday to the Mediterranean, we tend not to mean Algeria or Libya or Egypt or Palestine. We tend to think of the Mediterranean as being sort of rather sympathetic countries for a good summer holiday, and that somehow the crucible of civilization is born out of Athens and Greece and spreads north to spread enlightenment to Britain and other Western countries. I think if you took a more open and more honest view, you would want to see, in terms of where does civilization begin, well, look, where are the first cities in human history? And you find them in Mesopotamia. Where are the first laws in human history? Well, they're also in Mesopotamia. Where do all of our major global religions spring from? They all spring from Asia. If if we're talking about Islam, of course, Judaism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, Hinduism... Buddhism, Europe's peripheral position on the edge of the Eurasian landmass is something that was a fact until the discovery European encounter with the Americas and sailing across the great oceans. The heart of Europe, even in the Roman and Greek times, was in the eastern part of the Mediterranean, to, to the point that by 300 AD, Rome builds a new city, which is called New Rome, the site of now Istanbul, modern Istanbul, Constantinople, uh, to drag Rome's central gravity to where the action was. And the action was always in the east.
1: But just to challenge that Could it not be seen that Europe, which has certainly had its fissures, world wars, conflicts across its borders, often shifting borders in the last 200 years, just to to take a round figure, but does seem to have a kind of entity, we, we kind of know of which we speak, we might argue about where Europe begins and ends, whereas what you want us to look at it is much broader. It stretches across a massive land mass, and it doesn't particularly seem to have a ready centre of gravity, other than that you you choose the bits that you like out of Byzantium. Well,
0: I'm not. I'm not focused just on Byzantium. In fact, I'm not interested really in the West, and I'm not that interested in the East. I'm interested in that bit in the middle. That bridge between East and West is where we as humans have learnt how to exchange ideas. It's how we've learnt how to collaborate with languages. So that bit in the middle that's now sort of roughly a bullet hole around the Caspian Sea is where all of the world's major language groups come from. Indo-European, the Altaic languages of the steppes, uh, the Sino-Tibetan languages, the Semitic languages and the complex Caucasian languages. That bit is where everything has drawn... Travellers, traders, holy people, mad people, conquerors, always at the same place. And I suppose at the starting point, I begin my book by saying, well, look, Alexander the Great, the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest conqueror in history, had no interest at all in heading westwards to conquer the south coast of France or Italy or the hills of Tuscany. For Alexander, world conquest meant conquering Persia and bringing his borders up to the Himalayas and up to the banks of the Indus River. So that bit in the middle has always been what has shaped and built empires, including, of course, uh, the British Empire too. Control of that centre of the world has been what all empires have struggled and fought over.
1: But how much of our history in the West do you think has ignored this influence? At which point does it become something that you would argue is ignored Rather than simply part of a development where the attention span has kind of move somewhere else, if you like.
0: Sure. Well, okay. I'm at I'm at uh, Oxford University, where we have one of the best classics departments in the world. When we talk about classical civilization, almost uh, uniformly, we mean Roman Greece. Uh, the classical world of the Sanskrit Sanskrit texts of uh, of Persia, of China, are written out of the story. They don't count as classics. Classics to us today means Latin, Rome, uh, Greek, and Greek and Latin. And that story, I think, of how we compartmentalise what is important is partly a reflection of the fact that well, we we live on this island and so understanding its history is crucial and important. But our children at school in this country tend to learn French as a second foreign language or, if they're lucky, maybe German or Spanish. But you can count on one hand, I think, people who can speak Russian or Arabic or uh, Eastern languages in China and so on and so forth because we don't think that part of the world has ever really been important. And in fact, the problem is, is that we associate this world that I look at as one of primitive barbarism. So when we look at countries from Turkey through Russia, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, and China, we tend to see these these countries as ones that don't have a history that we know anything about. We don't teach them in schools, and we don't learn about them in universities. These are not peripheral countries. These are not spectators on the sideshow of the rise of Western European empires. It's just a function of the fact that these countries were once upon a time dominant and the age of the West rose in about 1600 to produce a very different centre of political and economic gravity and to, and to fundamentally change the way we look at history.
1: But this is really where I want to challenge the book, Peter. I mean, is it someone operating in at least some of the uh, territories that you describe, often covering walls or covering things that have gone wrong, what I'm less convinced about is that anything flows from a sort of lack of knowledge or interest or that, uh, to flip it the other way around, the Foreign Office has been full of Arabists for years in in a British uh, context. The State Department has had very knowledgeable people uh, on its books. You you mentioned Russia, but I would, if you want the sort of highest penetration of people who would know about and are interested in, in Russia, Washington, D.C. is a very well, good it, as place to go. As it happens,
0: yesterday, the State Department said that they hadn't been training enough Russianists. All of the resources had been spent on training people to speak Pashto. And so because you chased the game, uh, suddenly now the State Department needs a lot of Russian speakers. There was one Arab speaker in the entire Belgian security services On when the Brussels bomb, uh, Brussels airport bomb went off. So the problem is we are responding to the world around us rather than trying to understand why have why, why has the world come to be in the shape that it is today in 2016.
1: If you look at policy decisions that you would deem to have been influenced by the way people saw, mistakenly saw, the Middle East and, and Asia... How would you know that it was a lack of knowledge on their part and not simply a wrong call, a wrong decision?
0: Because we've got it wrong so many times. I think that that's the proof. You you look at the scale of intervention from the start of 1800 onwards and you count up how many times things have really gone right. I mean, I think going back, and. Uh, that that failure of language isn't about these exotic languages. That failure of language today in the 21st century is the same for our own European languages which are also dying in schools and universities which is one of the reasons I think in the 21st century here in Europe forget about what's happening in the rest of the world that language of fracture and disjuncture is something which we are much more keen to play up our differences right now for all sorts of different reasons.
1: But It seems odd to argue on the one hand that we have an overly western centric view and then to make a statement like since the 18th century we got it wrong, as if we were the centre of this. I mean, why would we not say that the rest of the world got us wrong?
0: Because we've been trying to control this part of the world. So in um, at the end, of, in, during the First World War, the British government, control of Persia and Mesopotamia is classed as, quote, a first-class war aim. By the Second World War, American diplomats were coming back reporting from Saudi Arabia and from the Middle East back to the United States, saying the oil of this region is the single greatest prize in human history. So control of those pipelines, control of the natural resources, control of the political elites in all those countries has been fundamental in keeping the West supplied with oil and commodities and goods.
1: Given that there has been a narrative in universities of sort of post-colonial studies which to some people at least can come across as feeling a bit like they're being sort of told off about it. And you've gone at it in a much more exploratory way of sort of turning the world around. Why do you still think that 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 is proved necessary? You might think, well, actually, we've had quite strong anti-colonial narrative and that might have made people more curious. But I think your contention is it it hasn't made them more curious or not curious enough.
0: Well, there was a report that came out last month that said that 93% of... um history faculty staff in the UK focus on the West. And the region I work on, uh, which is broadly from Venice through to the Pacific coast of China, is quite a large area to leave ignored. Now, in my book, I don't follow uh, British colonisers and Britain's engage- or European engagement with the outside world in terms of following the slave trade and so on, which is incredibly important work and brilliant work being done by some of my colleagues. What I'm really interested in is in how do places like Iran, how do places like Central Asia borrow and exchange ideas? Why is it that buildings like Kumayun's tomb or the Taj Mahal in India follow classical Central Asian forms? And why is there a sudden explosion of cash and capital in India, for example in the 1600s, that allows men to build tombs to their wives Uh, like in the Taj Mahal, and tracing the bullion flows. And that's all paid for by cash and money and silver and gold brought out of the Americas that finds its way to Asia.
1: Step forward, if you can, from around 1600 to the kind of decisions that we have to make now. You would like people to be better informed. And I, I presume you also think in America as well as in British universities. Are you clear what they would do differently or what they would approach differently? Well,
0: it's a very good question. Uh, You know, I don't have any illusions how difficult it is being either a policy planner or a politician trying to deal with events that are happening very quickly and fast in front of your eyes. I'm also not naive enough to think that when you're sitting at a negotiating table with plural voices from Russia, from China, from countries that are more or less engaged or interested in collaborating, how easy or hard it is to make those kind of decisions. But what I do know is that it's important to have a plan. And it seems to me that what we're quite good at doing in the West is trying to put out the fire right in front of us without thinking about the aftermath. I think that is certainly true about the intervention in Iraq. When you go through the invasion plans, how little thought had been given to what was going to happen after... Baghdad had been taken. To the same extent, today in Syria, what will happen if and when Assad goes, if he does go? How good are we going to be at rebuilding? And I think the criticism of the West, if there is a criticism, is that we haven't learned how to rebuild particularly effectively. And there are some very important examples that you could learn. For example, if you were looking about how to purge the Ba'ath Party in Iraq, one could have studied how that had worked after the Second World War in Germany. And we don't always find these connections and parallels easy to spot. We don't find it easy to learn from them directly, but it is important to learn from the past and to see who's had the same problems before. And the sense, I think, we have today of the 21st century is that these are brand new problems that have never been done, never been solved before.
1: But the lessons, perhaps, of Iraq and Aleppo might take us in very different directions. Iraq, you might say, plan for the aftermath if you intervene, intervene much more cautiously. And in Aleppo, the situation that you have where you have allowed... A different power player, Russia, into the equation. It's a humanitarian catastrophe, which we seem to be looking at rather helplessly from the West. So uh, is history just too difficult, too capricious a guide?
0: No, I mean, I think the, the, the terrible thing in history is that cities, they can and they do die. And what's happening in Aleppo today is what happened in Merv in the beginning of the 13th century when it was flattened by the Mongols. Merv was once probably the biggest inhabited city in the world. And there's nothing now nothing that remains apart from a few ice towers and, and walls and monuments that are gone. And
1: What does uh, that make you feel when you go and see somewhere like Well, like it that? feels
0: to me like seeing a, a friend dying of cancer. It feels that there's no way back and that every day the news gets worse and worse. And this aggressive ravaging is, is literally taking away the soul of a city. And part of the problem, I think, is that there's no forum either at the United Nations or between G20 or G7 or the the established powers to find a way of solving problems that they're not directly interested in. And, you know, my my job is not to criticise and name call individual politicians or countries or regimes. It's simply to try to provide a perspective on the fact that uh, we live in a fragile world. Uh, hundred years ago, one bullet hitting the Franz Ferdinand started a world war. Fifteen years ago, 19 men taking control of four aeroplanes transformed the shape of the Middle East, transformed the shape of, of our global religions. And I think history teaches you the, the modesty of realising that we are super fragile and that single events in the future are likely to happen. And that in those events, you need to have real clarity of thought and I think it's probably fair to say that in the aftermath of 9/11 and the plans to deal with the Taliban, there were too many competing uh, interests to try to work through a proper plan where you learnt from the past and had the time to react and do things in your own time. And that's the price. That's the price of politics. I think
1: you deal with students and researchers and live live among them. I suppose in an academic community, many of whom will have come to the study of history after. we can already start thinking about a post-Iraq generation. Do you think that that the outlook or the curiosity, the starting conditions, if you like, of young historians that you meet now are different from the time that you started as a historian yourself?
0: I'm a child of the Cold War. Uh, When I was at school, the Berlin Wall was up. There was apartheid in South Africa. China was essentially a closed society. Islam didn't really mean a great deal beyond a religion of peace. And that world fundamentally changed 25 years ago. We feel that we're living in these waves of transition that are unexpected. But these big shifts of political gravity, the fragilities... Uh, the movement of peoples, the competition between big powers is a fundamental part of life. And this is no different for, they have a different set of influences and impulses, the students who are arriving in Oxford this week. But it's it's still the same story. And the truth is, that was the same thing in, in the 20th century, whatever time you have been born, whether it was before the rise of Hitler, during it or afterwards, or before the First World War, during or afterwards. And I think that What's important is to have that perspective. And because the book, you know, I'm a historian and I understand that people want to talk about the modern era. But, you know, the book explains these rhythms going back uh, to more than 2000 years of trying to see why was it that Islam rose in the 7th century? What were the fundamental circumstances that allowed the followers of Muhammad to to build an empire that reached from Spain to the Himalayas? Why was it that Russia had once been a, a swamp, grew into a state that became an empire? Why was it that the Mongols were able to conquer the whole of Asia in the space of about 30 years? And those big questions, I think, are very important to look at. And they would have been no different for living through these times of change for our ancestors either.
1: Peter Frankopan, thank you very much. And The Silk Roads is out now.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: And if you have any thoughts on what we should learn from the past when it comes to handling the Middle East and Asia, do get in touch. You can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Selling a little or a lot?